You're listening to a completely normal episode of Chickens Can't See Cubes, the podcast all about absolutely 100% true facts that are not made up. I'm your host, Piper Dawes, and with me as always is Christopher Parr, director of the Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research. Chris has gathered his favourite... Oh, I didn't say hello. Should I say hello? I mean, it would be polite. <laughs> hello, Chris. Hi. <laughs> Chris has gathered his favourite facts from the Institute's activity this week, and he's going to share them with us today. Well, should we get straight on with things and do some facts, Chris? Yes. In the words of Rhett Butler, if he were an academic and not a gambler, scoundrel, and let's face it, actual rapist in the antebellum South, frankly, my dear, I don't give a fact. Listeners will, however, be pleased to hear that, unlike Rhett Butler, I will be giving a fact. Four facts, in fact. And not raping anyone. There it is. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask. Um, (laughs) What, just to be sure? You could never tell with Chris. Well, I just thought you were leaving the elephant in the room there. Like, unlike Rhett Butler. And then I thought you were going to basically say, you know, don't worry, I'm not a rapist. But you left that there and I'm like, oh, well, I've never questioned it before. Yes, I'll leave the elephant in the room so I can rape it later. (laughs) Fucking hell, Chris. This better not end up on an Easter egg. Who would buy that Easter egg? (laughs) It's not very Jesus-y, is it? Elephant rape. It's not in the Bible. No, that's true. Well, anyway, I mean, we do need ideas for merchandise, so that's that's a good start. What, elephant rape? No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Can we just... (laughs) Here's the first fact of the show. Let's gather round the fire of truth and allow the fact flames to lick our faces until we fully comprehend the contents herein. You can rent ants. Right, these days you can rent pretty much anything if you want to, from dinosaur eggs to Dixie Chicks tribute acts, pedigree pooches to presidential campaign crowds. If you can think of it, you can probably rent it. There are services where you can rent a friend to go to dinner with you or like on a date or just a friendly chat in a travel lodge hotel room for the night. In the same publication as these, I also found people renting those old Ford Escort cars on a per hour basis. My friend also set up a business on Craigslist called Disco Disruptor, where she'd turn up at any function where people are attending that might not get on, such as weddings, funerals, etc., and make such a scene that the guests unite against a common enemy. Given that renting is such a wide-ranging industry, I'm not entirely surprised to discover that you can rent ants too now. Uh, What's the deal, Chris? So... Ants have many uses in agriculture. They can control pests, usually by eating them. They can aerate soil by digging, and this improves drainage and prevents puddles from forming and effectively drowning crops. They can even be used to harvest seeds. Uh, Some crops disperse their seeds widely, making them difficult for human farmers to locate. But a colony of ants will gather them up and bring them back to the nest where the farmers can nick them. Despite all these uses, farmers are wary of ants on their land because permanent ant colonies can themselves become pests. Right, yeah. I mean, ants are great to have around for a visit, but after a while they're sort of in the way, making a nuisance, eating all of your cakes, and by the time a few days have gone by, you sort of wish you'd not invited them around in the first place. Kind of like parents, really. So really, you want to agree from the outset that your ant colony is a temporary arrangement. How do you do that? So a company called Ants, that's an acronym for Ant Necessity Technology and Systems. 
has solved the problem of permanent ant colonies by creating artificial and transportable ant colonies that farmers can rent. The colony is basically a big box of ants, kind of like a 3D ant farm. You can choose whichever species of ant you need for whatever purpose you need them for. And then ants, the company, turns up, sticks the big box of ants, the insect, on your land. And the ants, the insects, get on with whatever it is you need them to do. Once that's done, the box releases a special pheromone that calls all the ants, the insects, back to the colony. And then ants, the company, takes the big box of ants, the insects, away again. I mean, it's a great idea, Chris. Temporary ants. Ants tend to sort of disperse fairly quickly, though. And also, I I don't want to come across as one of them ant racists, but like, (laughs) they're quite hard to tell apart, aren't they? How do the uh, the 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 the, how do ants the company keep track of their specific ants? Well, each one of ants ants is the property of ants. And as such, each one of Ant's Ants is marked with a tiny little version of the Ant's logo so that you can easily tell Ant's Ants from normal ants. The branding serves two purposes. The first is to let everyone know that these are Ant's Ants. They are private property and therefore any damage done to them from stamping to magnifying glasses is destruction of private property. The second is so that Ant's, the company, can be held accountable should ants, the insects, become pests in themselves. Okay. I mean, that that does make sense. That's that's fair enough. So you're not allowed to do anything yourself to the ants that's going to damage the private property. That's fine. But like I I say, ants have a habit of not really sticking to one place. I know you mentioned about this pheromone that that brings them back. But, I mean, they are wild. They're not like... They're not um, trained ants, are they? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. These are just ants right? Uh, they're not trained ants. No, they're amateur ants. Amateur ants. Yeah. If I, if I dump a bunch of ants in my living room, they'll bugger off somewhere to make a nest. Like how do I, how do I stop my ants escaping in the first place? And if they do escape, is the deposit non-refundable? Well, I mean, you kind of misunderstood the point there. They already have a nest. The nest is the big box that they put there. Right. So, but if you're, if you're putting them out on a job, like you, you're, you're, probably going to take them out of that nest yeah but they always go back to the nest the nest is like where they live and then they go out of the nest to get food and stuff okay i don't think you know how ants work piper no i've got to be honest <laughs> <laughs> the whole idea is that you know ants have their their home their their ant house if you will and then they go out to to work or whatever and then when they're done working they go back to the ant house and so this transportable box of ants is the ant house. Uh, the issue is that uh, they can range wider than you might want them to. And uh, one of the issues ants the company has is that different species of ants have different kind of territorial ranges, which don't always correspond with the size of the, the land they're being used on. So sometimes the range is larger than the land, so they can get onto other farmers' lands and start causing issues. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about when they're concerned about their ants being pests elsewhere. There's also just the idea that the ants might get up to other ant stuff that the farmers don't want them to get up to on their land. Other ant stuff. 
All right. Well, obviously now it's it's starting to sound a little bit like a sitcom, but yeah, okay, yeah, fine. So they so they 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 could get up to mischief somewhere else. So how do they how do they stop that happening then? Well, ants, the company, has various procedures in place to ensure that their ants, the insects, don't get loose and run amok. For example, the pheromones I mentioned earlier, which call the ants back to the colony. Should disaster strike and ants, ants get loose, then ants, the company, can deploy their own ants-branded spiders to eat the renegade ants. Should those spiders then cause problems, ants will deploy their own branded birds to eat the spiders who ate the ants. Should the birds go rogue, then ants have their own cats to eat the birds who ate the spiders who ate the ants. If their birds prove to be a nuisance, then ants can send their dogs to eat the cats who ate the birds who ate the spiders who ate the ants. Of course, if the dogs cause issues, then ants will bring in their own proprietary goats to eat the dogs who ate the cats who ate the birds who ate the spiders who ate the ants. But if those goats get loose, then ants will turn to their cows who will eat the goats who ate the dogs who ate the cats who ate the birds who ate the spiders who ate the ants. And if the cows become pests, then ants would have no choice but to fly in their horses who could eat the goats who ate the dogs, who ate the cats, who ate the birds, who ate the spiders, who ate the ants. Thankfully, things have never had to progress past the horses. It sounds like quite a big, complicated business to run, Chris. It's quite simple, really. If the ants get loose, you send the spiders. If the spiders get loose, you send the birds. Do I need to go on? I mean, I'd rather you didn't. Um, <laughs> good, right? Okay. So, so all of these animals are they just they're, they're just in that for the in that in the in the business to stop the ants from from doing a naughty? Then basically, they've got all these. Do they not do? Do not do rent a horse or anything? Uh, they'll rent the horse if the cow becomes a problem. They rent the cow if the goat becomes a problem. Do I need to go on? You definitely don't. Um, <laughs> right? Okay. So I completely fully comprehend what you're saying. So we've talked about what, what they do and how they get around problems and stuff like this company, Ants, uh, the company, um, when they're ants, the ants uh, get up to mischief. Um, but we've not really talked about what customers might want to use these ants for. So are there any interesting examples of ways the rented ants have actually been used? Is soil aeration not interesting enough for you, Piper? Is the exhilarating, heart-pounding, hair-raising rip-roaring world of soil aeration not doing it for you i mean it's 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 certainly i mean i am frothing slightly but i feel like there's more to it than that i feel like there, there might be some interesting examples that go beyond that chris well i'm sorry to disappoint you but that is it i mean i covered this at the top of the fact ants are used for controlling pests aerating the soil and harvesting seeds that's it okay well fine <laughs> Uh, there was a mix-up once in which a pub in Brighton ordered a large ant colony for an Adam and the Ants tribute night. When the organisers realised their mistake, it was too late, and they had no choice but to leave the colony on stage and have their DJ play stand and deliver on repeat. <laughs> and did that go well? You know what? At first, people were into it. But by the end of the night, I think they were treating it as more of an avant-garde art show than an adamant tribute night. Do you think that um, a lot of things that are considered avant-garde art shows are actually accidents 
Yes, most avant-garde is actually administrative errors. Yeah. <laughs> the whole Tate Modern came about due to misplaced paperwork. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, I'm loving the ant stuff at the moment, Chris. We've not done ants very much, so, like, this is good. Any other fun ant facts? There's a species of ant which feeds on carrion. And if there are scavengers already feeding when the colony arrives, the ants will band together to form a panther to scare away the scavengers. What's carrion? It's like rotting corpses. Carrion, like carrion birds, like you know, like crows. Oh. Carrion, it's a, a, a well-known word in the English language, Piper. So you wouldn't know it, obviously. No, obviously. <laughs> right, so they get panthers to chase them away. And they don't get panthers. The, the colony bands together to form the shape of a panther so that the, the, the scavengers think, oh shit, a panther is here. They're scary. Let's leg it. And then the ants can eat the, the carrion. That's fucking brilliant. It's well known that there are a number of ant species which enslave other ants to do work in their colony. But there is also a species which employs other ants. The boss ants, as it were, get other ants to forage for food in exchange for a small portion of that food. And myrmecologists have observed lazy ants being fired by boss ants, industrious ants being promoted to the ranks of the boss ants, and even boss ants acquiring other boss ants' workforces to form region-spanning monopolies. Oh, wow. Okay, so they're intelligent enough to create essentially whole businesses. That's great. Um, it's not really intelligence. It's just their instinctual behavior, which has evolved to this level of complexity that would give the impression of intelligence. Kind of like you, Piper. Thank you. Yes, yeah. yeah I wonder where <laughs> that was going. Um, so, <laughs> so, Chris, has the Institute ever had any issues with pests? You mean other than you? Do you know what? I should have foreseen this. <laughs> Uh, we do have to be wary of fact mites down in the archives. Fact mites? Fact mites. Yes, if left undetected, the little buggers can cause irreparable damage to a fact and even devour an entire fact. Do you remember Steve McFadden's game show, What is Steve McFadden Wearing? In which Steve McFadden would stand behind a wall and contestants would have to guess what Steve McFadden was wearing. No, I don't remember that. But well, neither does anyone else because the fact might have got to it. I only remember because there's a separate fact about a doctor in the studio audience diagnosing Steve McFadden with a malignant mole in the episode in which Steve McFadden turned out to be naked. The second fact of this episode is as divisive as asking if cereal is technically soup. Here's Chris with the deets. Details. Pineapple on pizza caused a riot. Right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna sort this out from the outset, Chris. Um, people get all fucking weird about it. So here it is in the dictionary: pizza is a savory dish, and that's where the anti-pineapple shits make their case. Uh, but in 2010, the European Union passed a legal definition of pizza, which was incredibly stringent and basic. Lawyer Nicolette Ward, who worked with Chicago Town Pizza, where they got into trouble because their pizzas apparently not pizza, even though that's stupid, because of course it is, noted that legally, the minimum threshold of pizza is crust, tomato, salt, and oil. And the maximum is that, but with one kind of cheese and some garlic. No oven-cooked pizza, no meat pizza, no cow's cheese. 
cheese wasn't even an ingredient in pizza until 1889, until t- around 20 years before the first American pizzeria cropped up. You can't even use a rolling pin or a press. Forget any pizza produced without two distinct periods of dough rising under strict time and temperature controls. Essentially, from a legal standpoint, nothing is pizza. Therefore, anything goes. Have some fucking pineapple on your thin crust open top tomato pie if you want. Have half a tangerine on it if it gives you a tiny modicum of serotonin in this dystopic wasteland of sadness. But for fuck's sake, don't ruin a trip to open-topped tomato pie hut with a riot over pineapples. Have some goddamn perspective. What happened, Chris? Who are these arseholes who appear to be psychologically unable to let people enjoy things? I've got feelings. (laughs) Okay. So this was at a Pizza Hut restaurant in Peterborough in the UK. A party of people in the Peterborough Pizza Hut were having a palaver about how much they liked pineapple on pizza. Another party of people at a proximate table in the Peterborough Pizza Hut overheard the primary party's parlay about pineapple on pizza and pettifogged with their penchant for pineapple on pizza. This precipitated a debate between the two parties of people at the Peterborough Pizza Hut. Right, yeah, I mean... As with most visits to Pizza Hut, someone's got something to say about pineapple on pizza. What happened next? So it wasn't long before the argument spread throughout the whole restaurant. Tables declared themselves for or against pineapple on pizza, and even the staff started taking sides. Then things started to get ugly. People abandoned persuasive positions about the provenance and piquancy of pineapple on pizza in favour of ad hominem arguments, and risks began to appear in previously united tables the patrons of the Peterborough Pizza Hut got personal and then pugnacious. Right. So, I mean, Jesus, even the staff who are literally selling the things are picked aside. Well, controversy sells. Yeah, I suppose that's true. That's annoying, isn't it? How far did the argument go then? Well, the predicament at the Peterborough Pizza Hut came to a head when a group of Ananas insurgents decided to storm the restaurant's kitchen in order to find and destroy their stock of pineapples. Pineapple partisans perforce protested this plan, and so a full-blown riot broke out. A riot, right. Okay, so so this this escalated so far that actually it got incredibly violent. How long did this all go on for? Was there like an end point? Are there still some pineapple-obsessed twats out there somewhere, probably in a commercial estate car park, fighting about fruit on pizza? Well, the riot did end... Um, It finally came to an end when the Ananas insurgents finally breached the Peterborough Pizza Hut's pantry and, in their pursuit of pineapples, came across a cache of forgotten Star Wars Episode I The Phantom Menace tie-in merchandise, which mostly consisted of plastic cups with lids in the shape of Jar Jar Binks' big stupid head. Faced with a box filled with vacant Gungan stairs, the writers forgot their differences as they all immediately agreed on how terrible the Phantom Menace was, and indeed all of the prequels. The nascent piece was almost shattered when someone mentioned how much they enjoyed The Last Jedi, a statement nearly as controversial to some as pineapple on pizza. But thankfully, the awfulness of the prequels won the day, and everyone went home slightly embarrassed by their violent actions, but mostly angry at George Lucas. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should disperse all crowds using this technique. <laughs> <laughs> Just have like a big picture of Jar Jar Binks. And everyone goes, 
Oh yeah, he's shit, isn't he? And then they just all go home. <laughs> what a cunt! Oh my god, I think he's a cunt too. Oh, let's forget our differences and just unite in this hatred of Jar Jar. Right, so so Pizza Hut, they've got some responsibility in this, Chris, don't you think? I mean, I know the staff themselves actually took sides and like you say, like uh conflict is 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 profitable or some horrifying bollocks, but are they taking measures to prevent this kind of thing happening again? Well, the company's first impulse was to remove pineapple from their menu. But given how sensitive an issue this is, that would have just exacerbated the problem. Oh God, yeah. Uh, the Pizza Hut in Peterborough, where the protests around pineapple on pizza happened, has started asking customers to declare before they enter the restaurant if they plan on ordering pineapple on their pizzas so that those parties can be seated as far away as possible from those parties who do not want pineapple on their pizzas. Right, so the resolution to um, this disagreement is actually to segregate the parties within Pizza Hut. It's pineapple on pizza apartheid. (laughs) Right, so, I mean, there are are a lot of things, Chris, that we can argue about, uh, that we do argue about. There's a lot of important things that we can argue about as a society, as friends and things, like... This is this seems to be like one of the hot button topics, doesn't it? Like it's it, uh, for some reason, and that really kind of annoys me. Does the institute have any theories as to why some people get so opinionated about pineapple on pizza? It's not opinion. People don't have opinions about pineapple on pizza. This is a primal struggle between reality and delusion. It's like in the Matrix. You can either take the red pill and emerge into an exciting world of kung fu, dodging bullets, and pineapple on pizza. Or you can take the blue pill and stay in your shitty little constructed reality of dilapidated urban environments and boring pizza. I, I guess we've, we, we've, we've, we've found out exactly what side of the fence you're on on this debate then, Chris. Uh, there is no fence. It's just the pineapple on pizza garden, and then the shitty wasteland outside with you lot what, what do you mean us lot I'm, a, I'm in agreement with you you didn't even ask you know what piper based on a year of evidence i assumed you were going to take the contrary position <laughs> i'm not on a, i'm not contrary i'm just a fucking idiot <laughs> give me that same thing <laughs> chris is there is there anything that makes you irrationally angry you mean other than you Oh, fuck off. Like, I knew that was coming straight away. Yes, other than me. Um, I mean, I'm a, a fairly chill guy. I mean, I guess uh, people who walk slowly, people who can't walk in a straight line, people who chew with their mouths open, people who make wet mouth noises like all the time, people who can call me brother or mate or whatever. You know what? It's just people, actually. It's just people. They can fuck off. In a post-truth world filled with post-truth, one man is single-handedly, with the help of his best friend, breaking down barriers of gullibility, fiction, lies, corruption, falsehood and lies, and bringing the facts to the world at large. It's Christopher Parr, here with the third fact. Dr. Seuss wrote World War II propaganda. Uh, Theodore... Seuss Geisel uh, was not and has never been a doctor, uh, medical or academic, and he's never also never pronounced his name 
Zeus, uh, despite that being the accepted pronunciation. So already this man is a walking enigma wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in a seemingly innocuously whimsical children's illustrator. But tear open that paper-thin wrapper and we see a darker side to the doctor who is not a doctor, a side that wrote propaganda during World War II, as Chris said a moment ago. What do we know, Chris? Or, Or rather, what do you know? So Dr. Seuss, not to be confused with Dr. Zaius, Minister of Science and Chief Defender of the Faith, was a beloved children's author whose books were replete with fanciful rhymes and zany characters like Furry Scrooge and the Hatted Cat. Before that, it is well known that uh, Dr. Seuss, whose real name, as you said, was Theodore Zoe Skysel, drew political cartoons during the Second World War. These cartoons supported the war effort and criticised Hitler, fascism and prejudice, and yet simultaneously represented the Japanese-Americans as buck-toothed, slanty-eyed saboteurs. Seuss also worked on animated propaganda films, including army training videos featuring the popular character Private Snafu. Right, yeah, so he did satirical takes on the American government's approach to the war effort and echoed the already present public opinion of the Nazis at the time, uh, drawing cartoons about the reactionary wrecking crew of Congress and the Nazi anti-Semite stink wagon. Uh, But this work was more often than not critical of the decisions made by the US government and not a whimsical attempt to sway public opinion. What changed, Chris? So what is less known is that Seuss also wrote a number of propaganda campaigns for the war efforts. Uh, While his political cartoons were written for privately owned newspapers, and so were only indirectly part of the war effort, these campaigns were commissioned by the US military and were aimed directly at children. The campaigns were published as print and radio ads, and the artwork and literary style of these campaigns laid the foundation for Schuess's later children's books. Right, okay. So so this sort of lesser-known propaganda actually paved the way for his more famous stuff. So what sort of things did he say in this, in this propaganda material? The subjects of Schuess's propaganda campaigns included not speaking about the war effort where spies might hear you. That one was called No Mr. Nazi. What to do if you suspect someone of being a spy? That one's called There's a Spy in My Soup. And convincing your parents to buy war bonds. That one's called Please Mummy Buy a War Bond. So we know that now that the Nazis became aware of a lot of the different types of propaganda being propagated by the West and took measures to mitigate, uh, what was the Nazis' reaction to Zeus's material? Uh, so Seuss's propaganda campaigns were widely successful in America, so much so that the Nazis became aware of it, as with a lot of the propaganda, as you say. Uh, wishing to emulate this success, the Nazis tried to publish their own Seuss-style propaganda under the nom de plume Herr Jürgen. Um, however, the Nazis' famed lack of levity and the peculiarities of German grammar ensured that her Jürgen's rhymes just didn't have the same zany vitality as Dr. Seuss's. So it sounds it sounds like the Germans weren't as good as Dr. Seuss at making 
exciting and profitable propaganda. They could make exciting propaganda, just couldn't do it in the same way that Dr. Seuss did, because his stuff is based around a particular meter and rhyme scheme. But the way the German language works doesn't really lend itself to that. Right, yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, no one's quite like Dr. Zeus, are they, Chris? I mean, he's great, isn't it? The cat in the hat is fucking brilliant. So, I, I mean, I want to I know what this was like, what, what, it, what this... Um, this this slightly lesser known propaganda that he did. What was it? What was it like? Can we can we hear some of it? Yeah. So no, Mister Nazi went. No, Mister Nazi. I will not talk at revealing state secrets. I would balk. I see you hiding over there, listening to others talk. Is not fair. I mean, it's not the cat in the hat, but it's 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 still pretty good. And there's a spy in my soup. Went, waiter, waiter. There's a spy in my soup. I do believe he was trying to snoop. Call the police. Inform the mayor. We must seek out his comrade's lair. That's really good. That's that's good. I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of Dr. Zeus's um, poetry was designed to be visual as well. And obviously, we can't do that in a podcast. So that, 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 but I'm getting a lot of the imagery just from just from the language that's uh, that's in it. So that's I mean, it's, it's already fun. Please, mummy, buy a war bond. Went, please, mummy, buy a war bond. Of America's freedom, I am ever so fond. Maybe you could buy two, three, or four. Any amount can help us win this war. That's really good. That's really, it's really, it's really fun. I, I, I'd, I'd have, I'd have bought a war bond if I could afford it in the, in the war times. I'd have. <laughs> So let's just, let's just look at the other side of things, though, Chris. So you said that the Nazis tried to to mimic his style. Um, what was their what was their version of of Seuss style propaganda like? So I've only been able to find one example of it, and it goes: Ich habe gerade einen Juden gesehen, aber ich werde nicht herumgehen. Ich werde seine geflucht offenbaren oder er scheiße. In einer Sharon. Okay, Chris, I, I don't speak any German. Um, that all sounded fascinating, but I have no idea what it means. Well, um, a rough translation is, I just saw a Jew, but I won't walk away. I will reveal his refuge or shoot him in front of a crowd. Well, I'm sure glad I didn't have a positive reaction to the German version of it then. Yeah, that would have been really awkward, wouldn't it? It would have. (laughs) The final fact of this week's episode will involve a certain amount of reminiscing. If you have an aversion to reminiscence, try to remember a time when you weren't reminiscing to soothe you while we discuss the final fact. What's this one about, Chris? Desperate Dan is vegan. Desperate Dan, uh, an American character of long-running British comic book, The Dandy, is apparently the world's strongest man and can lift a cow with one hand. Uh, He shaves his beard with a blowtorch, sleeps on a bed of rubble, arguably the pinnacle of manliness and a classic example of early 20th century patriarchal propaganda. Uh, The only thing Dan's desperate for is maintaining the status quo, but now it seems he's also desperate for ethical cattle justice as well. In the new Desperate Dan comics, single-handedly lifting up cows above the heads of the morally bankrupt is not only a literal act, but also a metaphorical one. 
tell us about this new take of the beloved British hero who isn't British, who has grown as a person to love the animals enough to change his lifestyle, Chris. So for our international listeners, uh, Desperate Dan is a character in the long-running British comic The Dandy, rival to that other long-running British comic The Beano, which is home of the British version of Dennis the Menace. Um, so as you say, Desperate Dan is a cowboy and also the world's strongest man. In addition to uh, lifting cows, shaving with fire and sleeping on rocks, Dan is perhaps most famous for eating cow pies, uh, which are meat pies, presumably containing an entire cow, as evidenced by the horns sticking out of the top. Right. Yeah. I mean, I. Uh, well, let's just I mean, we can. We can talk about the uh, the vegan stuff in a little bit, but the the, the cow pie thing has always kind of bothered me. Like, it, it, you know, he, the, whole, the whole, I mean, it does suggest that it's an entire cow, but also like maybe they've managed to crush the entire cow except for the horns. Why did they manage to crush the horns? And if they, I mean, if the horns are broken off, why did they place them, arrange, like arrange them on top of the, I don't know. The whole thing bothers me. But like, Well, presumably it's an aesthetic choice in order to signal desperate Dan's virile masculinity. Yeah, that makes sense. As, as is of evidential, like I used to read a bit of the dandy sometimes when I needed to break from the Beano, you know, the better, the better beloved children's comic book. But I thought, I, didn't they stop doing the dandy? Oh, well, yeah, the dandy was uh, discontinued in 2013 after unsuccessfully trying to relaunch itself as a digital-only publication. But annuals with original strips are still being published. And in the 2019 Dandy Annual, it was revealed that a desperate Dan had gone vegan. And the character himself cited environmental and ethical reasons, discussing animal welfare and the catastrophic ecological impact of the meat and dairy industries with niece and nephew Katie and Danny. Consequently, desperate Dan's cow pies no longer contain an entire cow. They are now made with a plant-based cow replacement called counterfeit, spelt C-O-W, interfit. Like cow interfit. Yeah, no, I got the, I, I, yes, thank you. Thank you for clarifying, but I've got it already. Um, right, did it still have the horns? It has synthetic counterfeit horns. Wonderful. So this 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 massive development in in Desperate Dan's character, and we didn't we didn't think that he developed. We thought it was just going to be you know um, symbol of toxic masculinity for the rest of time. But 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 it seems that he has changed with the times. So, but do you think this development's changed the kind of hijinks that Dan gets up to? I haven't read it myself, but like has has it changed the stories at all? Not really. While Desperate Dan started as an outlaw, his character quickly shifted to that of a kind-hearted bungler, always ready to help the underdog. So being vegan hasn't changed that. It has made his adventures less troubling, though. Um, A later addition to the Desperate Dan family was Dan's best friend, a cow named Moorine. Like Maureen, but with Moo instead of Moor. Dan's habit of eating entire cows baked into pies gave his friendship with Moorine a somewhat disquieting undertone. 
which was only kept at bay by the cognitive dissonance of his carnivorous fans. Right. I I didn't actually know about Moreen. Um, right. So how has this change in Dan's uh, uh, ethical uh, characteristics, how's that been received by the notoriously understanding and not at all stuck in their ways British public? Well, Desperate Dan's vegan reveal, which, by the way, is a great band name, was well received by his vegan and vegetarian fans. However, most other Dan fans were loudly outraged by Desperate Dan's compassion and social conscience. Because you Omnis are a fragile bunch who see the ethical behaviour of others as a personal attack, I kind of want to use the word snowflake. Many delicate, sensitive Dan fans decried Desperate Dan's veganism as pandering to a sense of social justice or a perversion of his previously virile masculinity. Terms like SJW, woke, and soy boy were thrown around internet message boards. Okay, well, yeah, yeah, I mean... This happens a lot, Chris, doesn't it? Like people get annoyed at these these uh, progressions in public consciousness and decency and morality in the world. Like everyone, no one wants change. But to be honest, mate, as long as no one died, let them have a let them have a bit of a cry about it. Like they, they'll get over it, and then we can all just move on with our lives and become all the better for it. Yeah, well, I mean, some people couldn't move on. Uh, one self-styled Danatic. That's a portmanteau of. Dan and Fanatic, was so infuriated by Desperate Dan's concern for the environment and the welfare of sentient creatures that he vowed to eat an entire cow for every cow that Dan didn't eat. The Danatic named Desperate Dan after changing his name by deed pool. So his first name was Desperate and his surname was Dan, which must have made chatting up women difficult. Like, hi, I'm desperate. <laughs> uh, so um, he responded to the 2020 Dandy Annual, in which Desperate Dan eats no cows, by sitting down to devour an entire cow's worth of meat. Desperate Dan, the Danatic, not the comic strip character, subsequently died of what doctors called a meat overdose. Not to be confused with the sexual position popular among homosexuals, which has also resulted in at least one fatality. All right, Chris. Well, this is this has kind of reminded me of, of uh, something a little more general. Um, outside of the Desperate Dan universe and in the real world, why are some people so completely obsessed with meat. I'm not I'm not talking like just carnivores, like meat eaters. I mean I'm talking about those weird meat guy meat guys you meet at barbecues who just go on about steak all the time. Like, oh if I'm like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna have I'm just oh, I'm just gonna have I'm just gonna have the vegetable skewer because like I fancy some veg. And they're like, oh pussy, uh, eat some meat. Have some have some meat. Like a like a like a, a human being supposed to. I, I, I just don't I, don't, I don't, I don't understand it. Do you have any, any opinion on this at all? Well, um, I mean, I'd put the weird meat guys, as you put it, uh, down to 
people mistaking hobbies for personalities. See also people who brew their own beer, musicians, and people who are always banging on about their podcast. As for why like you omnis are so obsessed with meat, uh, one theory is that humans are just awful, awful beings who sadistically revel in the oppression, suffering, and death of other sentient creatures. Uh, this would certainly account for the strong correlation between meat obsession and political conservatism. Of course, that doesn't explain leftist omnis, who really should know better. Um, another theory is that the congestion of the arteries caused by consumption of meat results in less blood getting to the brain, which in turn lowers intelligence. This would explain why otherwise liberal, progressive people seem utterly incapable of understanding even the simplest arguments in favour of veganism, and why the most intelligent and reasoned defence of an exploitative and destructive meat industry that they can come up with is, but bacon though. I want to have a reaction, but I'm a, I'm a meat eater, so I have none. Yeah, exactly. That's you. That's you, that is. That's what you sound like. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I enjoy reminiscing about uh, the, my childhood and about the, the, the characters that I used to uh, uh, read about and stuff. Uh, but, 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 you know, recent times, uh, there's been a lot of changes in the world. And, and, and these characters, if they are still going, they are sort of moving with the times, I guess. I mean, some of them are. Some of them are dying out. Some of them are just sticking to their guns and saying, fuck you to the rest of the world. But there, are there any other beloved children's characters other than Desperate Dan? that are actually changing with the times. A recent uh, reboot of the beloved children's show revealed that Bill and Ben, the flowerpot men, are gay. Called it. Fucking knew it. Burke, the protagonist of classic stop-motion show The Trap Door, was recently revealed as asexual. This sparked a flurry of academic activity, which sought to reinterpret the terrifying things that live under the trapdoor as manifestations of Burke's own repulsion towards sexual activity, or even his own biologically determined sexual impulses. I'm going to now have to watch rewatch Trapdoor. Great. Are there any others? Yeah, uh, beyond the diversification of children's media, there was a gritty reboot of popular cartoon Penny Crayon, in which, after one of the creatures magically brought to life by her magic crayons killed her best friend Dennis, Penny spirals into depression and drug addiction, finally starving to death after spending her last days doing nothing but drawing syringes of heroin. That's it. That's the end of this episode of Chickens Can't See Cubes with me, Piper Dawes. I can be found on Twitter at Piper Talks and Christopher Parr from the Munchausen Institute. I can be found on Twitter at Trilby Norton and the Institute can be found at M-U-I-N-F-O-T-O-R-E-R-E. You can also contact the podcast on Twitter at C-Cubes, that's S-W-C-U-B-E-S, and Facebook and Instagram at Chickens Can't See Cubes. Uh, if you had fun listening to us, go tell the world about Chickens Can't See Cubes. We, need, we all need 100% true facts in our lives, don't we? Thank you for listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes. And remember, you probably could make it up, but we haven't. Honest. 
and we'll catch you once again on next week's show. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. So, yes, I mean, that is great. I don't understand German at all. That is great. That's your response to Nazi propaganda, Piper. I mean... <laughs> I mean, so during the interviews we did for our recent documentary special, for some reason you decided to defend racism. And now here you are <laughs> saying that Nazi propaganda, despite not knowing what the individual words actually mean, is great. Now, I'm a little concerned, Piper. Are you an actual Nazi? Well, surprisingly, no one's ever asked me that before. No, it would be the answer to that question. Well, how about then, in future, yeah, to let people know you're not an actual Nazi? You don't either defend racism or say, that's great, to Nazi propaganda.